Welcome to the Emergency Mind Podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we train ourselves to think and perform better during times of crisis. ER doctors or not, we all face emergencies in our lives, and this podcast is all about getting better at acting during times of uncertainty at stress and learning how to apply knowledge under pressure. So listen up, train hard, and enjoy, because you never know what's coming your way next. To learn more about building your emergency mind and to dig deeper into many of the concepts we get into in this podcast series, head over to our website at emergencymind.com. This episode is a modified version of a talk I gave originally at the LA County USC Emergency Department Grand Rounds. It's a discussion about sangfoi. Sangfoi is a French word coming from two components, sang meaning blood and foi meaning cold. Put them together and you literally get cold-blooded. But what sangfoi really means is calmness under pressure, and it's a vital skill not just for ER doctors, but for all of us. As always on this podcast, our mission is to dive into applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide specific medical advice. Additionally, our opinions are our own and not those of our respective employers. Okay, all of that said, let's jump in and talk about learning how to develop sangfoi as a skill. I hope you enjoy. All right, so sangfroid, S-A-N-G-F-R-O-I-D. Two words, French, again, sang, blood, and foi, cold, together meaning cold-blooded, literally. But really what it means is the act of remaining calm and focused under significant pressure. One of the most famous uses of this word is supposedly from Napoleon, talking about training his troops. And he said that fear and weakness must be trained out and sangfroid instilled. Sangfroid is important, of course, not just for Napoleon's troops, but for all of us, and especially for ER doctors, where it is essentially our main superpower as a physician. And it's what allows us to do our job, which is to deliver medical knowledge and skill to the patient where and when they need it. Not just in the setting of an office uh, or in a controlled environment, but anywhere, including among the chaos and the blood of a serious accident or a complicated medical case. I think everybody that works in emergency care remembers one of the first times that they saw somebody truly acting with sangfroi and how that person sort of stood out as a beacon of calm and skill among an otherwise chaotic environment. For me, it was a case during my intern year of residency, and it was one of the first cardiac arrests that I was involved in. I was pretty peripheral in the case. I was just performing a little bit of airway maneuver. And I remember distinctly watching the senior resident who was running the case look over the field and be able not just to understand what to do, but to deliver his instructions so calmly and clearly. This person was dying, and there was a lot of people in the room trying to fix them. And the resident running the code actually had enough wherewithal, skill, and sangfroi to look at me particularly and say, hey Dan, you're doing a pretty good job, but I need you to slow down those breaths you're giving just a little bit. You can do it, man. We have faith in you. That absolute poise in the setting of that amount of uncertainty always stuck with me. And I sat around afterwards wondering, how did this person develop that? How did they get from where I am at the beginning of what I'm doing to where they are, where they can run something so coolly and calmly? I'm not sure if I knew the word sangfroid as an entity at that point, but I certainly started thinking about it, as, as all of us do in emergency care. Of course, sangfroid is not only important in the emergency department. It has 
applicability in a wide variety of places in our life anytime that we find ourselves in a challenging or difficult position. In jiu-jitsu, for example, when our opponent achieves a dominant position over us, say they're about to sink in an armbar or a rear naked choke, Songfua is what allows us to think calmly and clearly, to not be overwhelmed by the situation, and to bring our best tools to bear to improve our position. As another example, I recently had a chance to learn from a friend about going spearfishing. In spearfishing, as in freediving, you wear a small amount of weight on a belt to help counter your natural buoyancy and help you dive deeper. My friend described how beginners often get a little bit panicked either by being deeper in the ocean than they're used to or by getting tangled in their line, and they have a tendency to flail if they get into trouble. Conversely, advanced divers will simply remove their weight belt and let it go as needed because they're able to think more calmly and coolly under pressure. There's a million more examples of how Sangfua can be useful, from business to the battlefield, Essentially, there's really no situation where being able to think more clearly and deliver more of your skill under pressure is not useful. And so my goal for this talk right now is to do two things. First, I want to talk about Sangfua as a skill, not a mysterious force that we come to eventually or something that we are either born with or not, but as a skill. And the second thing I want to do is to start approaching the topic of how do we train Songfua. And to do that, I'm going to talk a lot about how I train Songfua. Not because I think I have the absolute answer on how to build Songfua, but because I hope that in sharing my own story of what I'm working with, I can inspire you to figure out better ways and more personal ways to train Songfua for yourself. As with everything in the emergency mind, we're all in this together learning, trying to get better at how to apply knowledge under pressure. The big question underlying all this is, of course, how do I get Sangfua? How do I train myself to deliver things more calmly under pressure and to apply knowledge under pressure? And I think to answer that, we have to take one step back and ask the question, what do we believe Sangfua really is? So when I first started thinking about Sangfua as its own thing, as in this case, the delivery of emergency care as different than the actual knowledge of emergency care, I asked around and I heard a lot of things, none of which were particularly helpful. And maybe these are things that you've heard in other contexts as well, thinking about how to develop knowledge under pressure. I heard, well, it just comes naturally with time, or some people are just better at it than others. Maybe, maybe you'll just get it eventually if you just stick around long enough. Um, and my personal favorite and least helpful, just be calmer, just be calmer not particularly useful advice in terms of how one would develop Sangfua. And so thinking about this a lot and listening to these uh, pieces of advice, I came to think that there are several core myths about how Sangfua is built, and I think that it's worth going through them and trying to dispel them. Okay, so myth number one about Sangfua, about delivering knowledge under pressure, is that it's an innate talent. You either have it or you don't have it. Now, this is particularly a dangerous myth for many reasons, uh, the most important of which is that if you believe that you either have it or you don't, then your die is cast and you don't have an ability to make any difference in yourself or in your ability to provide care under pressure. Still, this is a very common myth that we hear that we believe that some people are just better at this than others. 
Now, personally, I know this isn't true because I can look internally and think about my own journey in providing medical care. And specifically, I look back at a time when I was a very, very beginning medical student and I was walking around in the hospital assisting with some tasks and I encountered a patient that, well, what I know now is that I had encountered a patient that had essentially gone into cardiac arrest. They weren't breathing, they stopped breathing, and they didn't have a pulse. And now what I would do in that circumstance is immediately start CPR, call my team together, calmly run the situation, and drive forward with all of my skill. What I did at the time, though, was run out of the room, panicked, and try to find another doctor to help. Now, that's not a judgment on medical students finding more senior doctors or senior residents, which I think is generally speaking a good thing, but that initial instinct of, I can't handle this, I've got to go to the next person, is certainly not sangfua. When I talk to my friends that are emergency providers, many of them share similar stories about one of the first times that they encountered a truly sick patient. Their response to that being, I need help, as opposed to a calm delivery of skill. In fact, that's one of the really important things that training in an emergency care residency provides, which is that when done correctly, it trains you over time how to improve your sangfua. So if that's true, if most of us who are now skilled ER providers started somewhere different, then it really can't be true that you either have sangfua or you don't. To put it really succinctly, you are not born with the ability to apply knowledge under pressure. You certainly can't apply knowledge under pressure as a toddler. Somewhere along the way, you have to learn, you have to train how to do this. The second important myth is somewhat similar. So maybe you're not born with it, but the second myth says that you get it all of a sudden. It's handed to you as a complete package somehow from on high. You are given a gift of, quote, the knowledge, quote, and then all of a sudden you have the ability to perform under pressure. Now, in some sense, this is the Marvel superhero myth, right? You're a normal person going about your normal life, and you get bitten by a radioactive spider, and then you become this superhero. You get hit by gamma radiation, whatever it is. And in this sense, the idea is that the knowledge comes from somewhere outside of you, and it's delivered to you. Now, maybe somewhere there is a lesson that will make everything perfectly clear, but I have yet to find it. And I think for myself and for my friends who are providers of emergency care, it doesn't work this way for us. It doesn't come from outside. And even when it might seem like it does, it's helpful to remember the idea of the stonecutter credo, right? Which says that when you watch a stonecutter hit a rock and you watch the rock split open, it's not just that blow that split the rock. It's that blow plus all the other blows the stonecutter has been striking into the rock. It only looks like it splits at the last one. So even if we are given a lesson or a talk or something that helps us unlock a new area, a new ability to do sangfua in our life, it's that plus all of the mental work we've done ahead of that to prepare our mind for that moment. As far as I know, when it comes to developing the ability to apply knowledge under pressure, there are no radioactive spiders. Okay, so on to the third myth. And the third myth, I think, is the most pervasive and the most dangerous of the ideas that we generally have about sangfua. Now, it's easy to understand that toddlers probably can't provide emergency care, that we're not born with the ability to apply knowledge under pressure. And most of us believe that it comes from hard work and training as opposed to from a radioactive spider. 
The problem, the reason that the third myth is so dangerous is because unlike the first two, it's really easy to believe that this is where Songfoa comes from. So the third myth goes something like this. Songfoa, it says, is the accident of training. It is a natural consequence of training. Songfoa comes naturally from time on target. And the idea behind this is that when you're doing your normal training, you're seeing patients, you're putting in the reps, that accidentally in that process you develop Songfoa. And that if only you stay with your normal training long enough, you will sort of inevitably come up with Songfoa once you've seen enough patients. There's a transactional sort of banking type feeling to this myth that says that every time you see a patient, you increase your statistic of sangfoi and that over time you put enough into the bank that all of a sudden it tips over and you've reached the state where you can successfully apply knowledge under pressure. Now, certainly there is some truth to this in that you cannot develop Songfoi, you can't develop the skill of applying knowledge under pressure until you practice applying knowledge under pressure. You certainly will not develop Songfoi unless you continue to show up and put in the work. However, showing up and putting in the work is necessary but not sufficient to develop Songfoi. And that's why I think we need to deconstruct this myth a little further. So imagine for a minute that this myth were totally true, that Songfoi arose just out of repetitions. If that were the case, then in all circumstances, the oldest doctor in the room, the doctor that had seen the most patients and spent the most time as a doctor, would automatically be absolutely the best at applying knowledge under pressure. The thing is, that's just not true. There are certainly wonderful older physicians, people that have been practicing for a long time and have developed enormous bodies of knowledge and the ability to use that knowledge, but there are also quite skilled younger physicians who've been practicing for quite a bit less. In my experience, which is admittedly limited by my own age and time on target, the relationship between skill of applying knowledge under pressure and age or time in the emergency department is not linear, or at least it's not always linear. And if that's true, if it's not just number of repetitions, then there must be something that the people who are the best at Songfoi, at the best at applying knowledge under pressure, there must be something that they are doing differently in their training and differently in their day-to-day -day practice. Of course, this goes beyond just my personal experience with this. There's a wonderful book that really guided some of my thinking about these ideas called Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise by Anders Ericsson and Robert Poole. I highly recommend this book and it talks a lot about the science of deliberate practice and how we learn to get better at a skill. When I was reading this book, there was a passage very close to the beginning in the chapter called The Power of Purposeful Practice that really jumped out at me. And I'll quote from it now. It says, if you never push yourself beyond your comfort zone, you will never improve. It goes on to say, we have especially strong evidence of this phenomenon as it applies to physicians. Research on many specialties shows that doctors who have been in practice for 20 or 30 years do worse on certain objective measures of performance than those who are just two or three years out of medical school. It turns out that most of what doctors do in their day-to-day -day practice does nothing to improve or even maintain their abilities. Little of it challenges them or pushes them outside of their comfort zone. I think it's worth repeating that one more time. It turns out that most of what doctors do in their day-to-day -day practice does nothing to improve or even maintain their abilities. 
As a doctor, that's a very sobering thought, and it really flies in the face of the idea that just doing your day-to-day -day job over and over again, just seeing patients, will somehow naturally produce the ability to apply knowledge under pressure. Again, certainly spending time seeing patients is necessary to develop the skill of applying knowledge under pressure. But what's the difference here? What's really the difference between the idea that sangfroid comes as a natural result of time and the concept that some people get better at this than others, and it's not just about the number of patients that they see? In my mind, the big difference is the conscious decision to treat applying knowledge under pressure as its own skill. In other words, to get better at applying knowledge under pressure, you have to consciously decide to become a student of sang foi. So how do you do that? Well, think for a moment about some other skill that you're training, and that could be an emergency skill like intubating, or it could be a non-emergency skill. So I spend a lot of time in my own life right now developing the skills of jujitsu and surfing, two passions that I'm definitely throwing myself into. And so when I think about a skill I'm learning in any one of those fields, I want to try to draw lessons from how I get better at that skill and turn around and apply it to the skill of sang foi. Now, again, I really recommend that you read this book, Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. There's an enormous amount of detail in there about how we get better at it. It's a really rich book, and there's too much to go into in one episode of this podcast. That said, there are a couple of really crucial ideas that we can start applying to how to build sangfoi as a skill. First, we don't get better at a skill like applying knowledge under pressure as an accident. I hope I've convinced you from the first part of this podcast that you have to make a conscious decision to train Sangfoi. Now implicit in that is the idea that it has to be your conscious decision. You personally have to take control of the decision and take ownership of the fact that it's going to be up to you to build this skill for yourself. You can, and I believe you should, look up to people that are excellent at applying knowledge under pressure and take ideas and practices from them. But ultimately, it's your mind and it's going to be up to you to figure out how to build it. One of the most important components of that is going to be setting up a process of self-evaluation, of thinking about how you did under pressure and what can you do better at. Structurally, this type of a process has three components. The first is some sort of an action, and this could be applying knowledge under pressure, it could be a case, it could be a particular match in jiu-jitsu. The second component is measuring and reflection, where you go back and you look at how you performed in a particular aspect, and you try to hold yourself to a standard and measure your success and your failure in that regard. The third component is an adjustment. In this case, you take what you learned from the measuring component and you decide to change something for the next time you perform, the next time you apply something under pressure. Now this cycle, perform, measure, learn, is certainly not a new idea and it's certainly not something that I personally created. It's out there in a lot of different forms. One of the more interesting ones, or at least one of the first ones that I encountered it in, is the book called The Lean Startup by Eric Reis. In this book, which is primarily about entrepreneurship, the cycle is called Build, Measure, Learn. And the idea is that you build a product, you measure how that product does, you learn something about your underlying assumptions and what you want to change, and then you change it and go back and build something else. But whether you call it Build, Measure, Learn, or Try, Measure, Adapt, or basically anything else, the cycle is essentially the same. You perform, 
you grade yourself on that performance, you figure out what to do differently, and then you go out and do it differently. And it's the creation of that cycle and the understanding that it's up to you to run that cycle over and over again that forms the core of the conscious practice of building sangfua and applying knowledge under pressure. Now, having a coach, somebody who is very skilled at applying knowledge under pressure, somebody that you can talk through your thoughts and decision-making processes with, um, is definitely an important and wonderful thing if you have access to that type of a person. Similarly, doing group reflection, where you're able to work with peers who are struggling with some of the same issues and who are certainly devoted to developing sangfua in their own life, that can be a really powerful thing to work with too. But ultimately, even if you don't have a coach and you don't have a reflection group, you can do this process in yourself. You can build this cycle into your own day-to-day -day life and you can apply it towards whatever part of the skill of applying knowledge under pressure you're trying to build. Now, when I originally gave this talk, I paused here and I asked the audience how many people were consciously, personally working on building Songfua in the past week. How many folks could point to an actual time they'd run this circle, this cycle in their own lives? Not a lot of hands were raised. And I don't think that's at all a reflection on the excellent audience that I was working with. I think it's more a reflection on the idea that most of us practice our day-to-day -day jobs and we think about the knowledge that we apply, but we don't think consciously about building Sangfua as its own skill. To get better at it, though, I think that we have to. We have to be applying this cycle of build, measure, learn, or try, measure, adapt at applying knowledge under pressure, and we have to do it consistently. So how do we get started doing this? Well, what I wanna share with you are three points in my own life, in my own practice of emergency medicine, where I am working to consciously apply this cycle and to get better at applying knowledge under pressure. Now, these areas certainly aren't the only ones I'm working on, and they are not necessarily the ones that might be most helpful for you. I'm presenting them because I think that they're easy to understand and get a hold of, and I hope that you can hear them in the spirit of that Bruce Lee quote, which is, absorb what is useful, discard what is not, and add what is uniquely your own. Ultimately, of course, the decision of where to start practicing Songfua consciously is going to be up to you. That said, structurally, we're going to look at three different opportunities to apply Songfua immediately before the start of a critical case, during a critical case when something doesn't go the way you'd want it to, and immediately after a critical case. So let's start with the first part. Imagine for a moment you're the ER doctor and the emergency radio goes off. They say ETA two minutes coming in, a very sick patient. He sounds potentially like he has a stroke or something going on in his brain that's causing him to not be able to breathe correctly. And you have a pretty high suspicion that when this person arrives, you're going to have to intubate him, which means that you're going to have to put this person to sleep and put a breathing tube in to take over breathing for him. This can certainly be a very high stress moment. You know something critical is about to happen and you have just a moment to settle yourself as well as to galvanize your team and get all your resources put together. So how do you get ready to apply your knowledge under pressure? How do you calm yourself down and make this happen? Well, personally, what I do is use what's called an anchor movement. Okay, an anchor movement is a physical practice, usually a small motion or sometimes even a hand sign that you can use to trigger the memory of a particular training or a particular physiological state. 
you can see anchor movements at work in the way that a pitcher sets up to throw a particular pitch, the way that the batter warms up and gets ready to step up to the plate, and in a variety of other non-baseball circumstances. Now, everybody develops their own anchor movement. Personally, mine is to check the pulse at my right wrist with my left hand. My goal in performing this anchor movement is to center myself and be ready to deliver the best care that I possibly can. So checking my pulse accomplishes this for me in two ways. First, it's one of the first things you learn in medical school, how to check the pulse of a patient or of yourself. And so when I do it, it reminds me of all of my training. It lets me think about how far I've come since the first time I learned how to check a pulse. The second thing it does is it highlights my own mortality and my limited time on this earth. For me, I recognize that I don't know how many heartbeats I have left, but I do have this heartbeat right now and I can decide what to do with it. I can decide to do the best that I can to help this person coming in. Collectively, remembering my training and being able to decide what I want to do with my life provides me with the grounding and the focus that allows me to deliver care as effectively as possible. Over time and reviewing my own practice and successes and failures, I've noticed that the better I am at calming myself down and getting ready for a critical case, the better I perform during that case. So my cycle of try, measure, adjust is to, over time, try different actions at the beginning of a case, measure my performance during that case, and then adjust, over time, my actions right before in this first critical moment. That's how I personally developed this particular anchor motion. Of course, it's a work in progress, and sometimes I might try different types of anchor motions or different types of techniques to ground myself and center myself before the start of a case. I might, for instance, try a breathing technique like battle breathing, or I might try a particular mantra or saying to help myself get focused. Whatever the case is, whatever I'm experimenting with, again, the idea is to try that thing, measure how it does, how it acts on you, and then adjust and keep moving. So let's say it works well. You check your pulse, you're ready to go, the patient arrives, and sure enough, they're not breathing well, and you realize quickly that you're going to need to intubate them. You're going to need to put a breathing tube in. So you galvanize your team, you get your equipment ready, you deliver your medication, you set up, and all of a sudden as you're getting in, something goes wrong. Your equipment breaks. The patient is more complicated than you thought they were. You reach for your backup and your backup is handed to you differently than you're used to or it's wrapped in a different type of packaging or it just falls on the floor. But whatever the case, you find yourself in the middle of a situation that is dangerous, unpredictable, and not going according to your plan. So what do you do? Well, first off, this is exactly why we build and train Songfua. This is applying knowledge under pressure. This is being cold-blooded. It's also, of course, extremely challenging, and it can feel in the middle of these moments like the world is just coming down on top of you, like everything is on fire. And so what you need to achieve your state of Songfua, or really to return to your state of Songfua, is some sort of a reset technique, something that can help you understand and acknowledge the difficulty, the stress of the situation, and transcend that to get back to your training and to get back to your calmness and your Songfua. 
even if you're not an emergency doctor and you're not trying to actively intubate somebody, we all run into situations like this where everything just feels like it's not quite working and you have to make a move pretty much immediately. And again, this is the idea ultimately behind the entirety of the emergency mind is learning how to apply our knowledge in this particular situation. Personally, what I do in this situation is to say something out loud, to say a phrase out loud that I've practiced over time and imbued with meaning. And that phrase for me is quite simply, well, this is suboptimal. I love that phrase. This is suboptimal because it accomplishes a number of things. First, it acknowledges the difficulty of the situation. I think that if you find yourself in a situation where you really need sangfua and you pretend that you're not in that situation, the pressure is just going to build. Conversely, if you're able to find a constructive way to acknowledge the difficulty of the situation and return to your training and your skill, you're able really to more successfully move past that. However, you can't pick something that drives you so much towards how bad things are that you get distracted from what you're supposed to do. So you have to find something that's really in the middle. For me, labeling something as suboptimal accomplishes that. It acknowledges the fact that this is certainly not optimal, but it doesn't drift me all the way towards thinking about how terrible a situation is by labeling it as horrible or awful or something worse. Aside from just acknowledging the difficulty of the situation, calling something suboptimal saying, well, this is suboptimal, does two things for me. One, it reminds me briefly of all of the other truly suboptimal places that I've found myself in in my life and that I've successfully made my way out of each of those to get to this particular moment. I've been in suboptimal places before. I'm in a suboptimal place right now. I'm going to get out of this one too. Also, frankly, it adds a little bit of lightheartedness to the situation. To be in a moment where somebody's life is in your hands and whether or not you do this next move correctly can mean success or disaster, where maybe you're covered in blood and vomit and there are multiple traumas piling up in the hallway can be a very stressful situation. To add a little bit of lightheartedness to it, to call that situation suboptimal, to me, that helps me maintain the proper focus and balance between being not too tight and not too loose. It allows me to understand the gravity of the situation and also to bring a little bit of humor and a little bit of maybe even joy to it with the idea that I want to find just the right amount of tension to get my job done. Finding that proper amount of tension to get the job done is definitely something that I continue to work towards and that I evolve into. And that's also another opportunity to use that build, measure, learn cycle, right? You watch yourself as you go through a particularly stressful situation. You measure and reflect back on the level of tension you are carrying. And you consider, should you adjust that? Should you be tighter or a little bit looser? How do you bring the right amount of amped up, but also calm and relaxed into a situation? Again, it really comes with conscious reflection and self-study. Also, the words that you might choose to use as a reset button are certainly personal. You might try to label something as suboptimal and not get anything out of it. You really have to pick a thing that means something to you. One of my colleagues recently told me as we were discussing this that their particular version of calling something suboptimal is in the middle of a difficult situation to say, uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. I love that because it's something that's very unique to this person and for whatever reason, that phrase triggers in this person the ability to calm down and get their job done. And it's a great example of 
consciously building something that works perfectly for you. Okay, so let's say you get through the intubation. Either you're able to get it, but it's very complicated and challenging and there were problems that happened because of the system that didn't need to happen, or maybe you weren't able to get it and unfortunately the patient had a bad outcome. Whatever the case, let's say you're carrying some stress from this particular encounter as you move into the room of the next patient to see them. Now remember, you can replace patient here with next business meeting or next jujitsu match or next conversation with your spouse or partner. Whatever it is, that moment needs your full attention and it's not going to get it if you're still carrying tension and difficulty from the prior case. So a great time to practice Sangfua is at the end of a difficult situation, right as you transition into the next one. And this is something that I personally am definitely actively working on, um, letting go of the outcome of a case and rebounding to sort of my full level of calmness as I approach the next room is something that I struggled with in the beginning of my career as an emergency doctor. I would get tied up in the outcome of a case emotionally, and I would have a hard time letting go as I kept moving. At some point, we'll probably do a podcast episode just about this one moment. How do you let go of what happened right before this and move on to the next moment? But for now, what I'll share is that Usually what I do in this situation is to think about a quote from the Stoic philosopher Seneca. Now Seneca says, do not stumble on something that is behind you. Again, that's, that's worth saying again. Do not stumble on something that is behind you. And so what I will do in this circumstance is to ask myself as I'm moving out of a room to another one, is there anything that I'm tripping on that's actually behind me? Sometimes just asking that question is enough to lighten the burden that I'm carrying. Sometimes just acknowledging the fact that, yeah, maybe I am tripping over something that's behind me is enough to try to let that go. In other times, the situation is enough that I need to do something else to try to let go of whatever it is that I'm carrying. Now, that's also an area I'm actively working on that I don't have a perfect answer to. But again, that's where I'm applying that build, measure, learn cycle of testing out different techniques to develop Sangfua, to develop a quicker and more competent return to a calm baseline and the ability to apply knowledge under pressure. Again, the idea here is less about the particular quote from Seneca, although I really do love that quote, and more about the idea of asking yourself personally the question, what does it take for you to let go of what happened right before this and reset yourself to the baseline that you want to be at? to get your footing back together, to return to your ready stance, so to speak, so that you're able and competent to deliver that care, to deliver that skill, whatever that skill is for you, moving forward. So putting all those together, we have ideas about how we can personally start applying Songfua, about practicing applying knowledge under pressure as its own skill before, in the middle of, and immediately after a critical situation. As we wrap up this episode of the podcast, I hope that there are two things that you can take away from it. First, the idea that Songfua, that applying knowledge under pressure, is its own skill. It's not something that happens by accident, it's not something that you're born with, and it's not something that happens just by showing up to work. It's something that needs conscious, dedicated training. 
Second, I hope I've been able to provide to you some ideas of how you can start training and building Sangfoi in your own life, things that can serve as a jumping off point to your own experiments mentally as you continue to build that cycle of build, measure, learn in your own life. This certainly isn't the end. Thinking and talking about how to build Sangfoi is a core component of the emergency mind and one of the big reasons why I do this podcast. So it's certainly going to be something that we're going to come back to again and again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emergency Mind podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, but more importantly, I hope you found something in there that you can use next time you find yourself in the middle of an emergency. To learn more about what we talked about in this episode and about building your emergency mind in general, head over to our website at emergencymind.com.